Good morning. So we're reading Daniel 1, 1 through 7. In the third year of reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judea, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia, and he put the treasure in he put the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Aphpanan's chief of court officials to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judea, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief officials gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar to Hananiah, Shadrach to Mishael and Meshach, and, and to Arinz and Abednego. All right. It's not often that you get clapped for for reading the Bible. That's a lot of words, and I appreciate Jesse taking one for the team this morning. Uh, I just want to reiterate uh, that anybody who uh, is not a member at our church and would be interested in that in any way is uh, welcome to come to uh, lunch immediately following church uh, up in the fellowship hall. We, um, yeah, we're prepared for you. So if you would like to come to that, that'd be great. You, coming to the meeting does not mean that you are signing in, you're not signing your name in blood or anything of that nature. So you're good to go. All right. How many of you have seen The Born Identity? You can raise your hand. Sinners, everyone. No. Um, uh, people love those movies. People really love those movies. My mom, in particular, loves the Born Identity movies, which is always funny to me. Matt Damon is awesome in them, right? And I th but what I think is interesting about these movies and what makes them compelling is, that, is the story that kind of runs underneath the surface of all the car chases and the secret assassin fights. Those parts are really interesting and fun. But I... Uh, but I think it's something that runs underneath that, those stories, those movies that are interesting. And I think the story, the thread that's running through those movies is uh, in the name. I think, I think there's a hint in the name. What do you think it is? Identity. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> you had a 50-50 shot and you messed it up. Man alive. Uh, at the core of the born identity is this question of personhood or identity, isn't it? Right? The question the peop, uh, that, the, that is really propelling the story forward is, who am I? Right? Born is asking, who am I? He goes racing through exotic city streets and jumping over rooftops, all in a quest to discover who he really is. And I think, I think, part of the reason that these movies are so good is because on a practical level, that's what we're all doing. We are all, in a sense, asking the question, who am I? What am I here for? What am I supposed to be doing? And if you remember, uh, 
the movie, the, the main way that Bourne discovers who he is, the main way that he discovers his identity, as it were, is by understanding his history, his backstory, because he wakes up with amnesia, and he doesn't know who he is. All he knows is that he is very good at fighting and apparently can run really fast, right? Uh, in order to understand who he is, he has to understand his backstory. He, he has to understand his history. And until he can do that, until he understands his story, he never fully understands his identity. He never knows who he actually is. He, he's, and he's honestly never free to move forward into his future until he understands his identity. He's just kind of stuck in this Groundhog's Day of secret assassin fights, right? Until he discovers who he is and what his story is, what is, what is, where he came from, who his family is, and those types of questions. And I think part of what makes this story compelling is that it's a little bit of a parable for our modern American situation, right? We're all very mobile now. People move far from home. They, don't, they, they tend not to work in the same place where they grew up, right? We're, we're disassociated from uh, kind of traditional values in a way. And so everybody's kind of off on their own, attempting to make their own, construct their own world and construct their own identity out of these disparate pieces of information that they gather from culture. We're all cut off, in a sense, from our stories. We don't really know how our lives make sense. And so we get caught in this cycle of just building our lives on things like ambition and a desire to build our own little kingdoms. We, we, we try to build our lives around things like power or comfort. And we really don't know what our story is. We're not living into anything. We're just building for ourselves. And we are not, as it turns out, living a good story when we live this way. When we are not living good stories, we lose sight of our purpose, right? When we're not living a good story, we lose sight of our direction and our purpose. And everything just becomes about limiting pain and maximizing pleasure, right? This is what life becomes about. It's not a good place to be. And it leads to a type of hedonism, actually, that strips life of its value rather than adding value to our lives. Just ask Hugh Hefner. Right? Right? When we lose sight of our identity, we actually lose a vision for our future. We actually lose things like hope and joy and imagination when we don't know who we are. And we have this on the screen. If we don't understand our story, we don't understand our identity. And if we don't have an identity, we can't have a compelling vision for our future. If we don't understand who we are, we cannot have a compelling vision for our future or who we are becoming. It turns out the question of identity, knowing who you are, right, knowing who you are is far more important than we think. Understanding your story and who you are is vital to accessing joy and significance in life. Jason could not be happy, right? That's one of the, the main characteristics of Jason in those movies is that he is eternally unhappy, right? He is very serious. And the most recent one, what did he say? Six words, the whole movie? If you saw the most recent one, which was the worst of the four. Um, just Nick Nepper, movie critic. Um, and this is the essence of the problem that we're looking at today, I think. Uh, when we move into the tail end of the story of the Old Testament, and this, the tail end of the story of the Old Testament, this issue that we're, we're going to be covering today is called the exile. I believe we have a, a, 
a timeline slide that we can throw up. So we've covered creation in the fall. Then we started talking about Israel with uh, Abraham, the exodus. We talked about the, the people's exodus from Egypt. We talked about King David. And today we're kind of wrapping up the, the four-part story that is the story of Israel with the exile. Now the exile is a part of the story that we don't often talk about. Not very many people understand the story of the exile because they don't make very many movies about it, to be honest with you. It's not a part of the story we want to talk about very often in church even because it's not a very victorious story. The, in some ways, the, the, the people of Israel never recover from the exile. It's not something that they overcome and everything's better afterwards. The exile is this um, mark. It's a little bit of a blight on the story of the people of Israel. And so it's hard for us to know how to handle it, right? It's hard for us to know what to do with it. But I think it's a vital importance of the story. And if we skip over the exile and what it means in the sweep of the story of the scriptures, then we miss something significant that came right before Jesus. Because the, the story of the exile happens roughly five-ish hundred years before Jesus is born. But the, the implications of the story of the exile carry themselves right into Jesus' day. Everybody in Jesus' day was talking about this, these ideas and struggling with these realities. And so if we don't understand this part of the story, we don't understand the world in wi within which Jesus uh, is born and ministers. So... Today we're looking, specifically, we're looking at the exile through the lens of the story of Daniel. Now Daniel is like a first-person narrative of the story of the exile. There's other, there's other places where the story of the exile is told, but Daniel is the story of the exile through the eyes of Daniel as he experiences it and as he walks through it. And, uh, and in many ways, the story of the exile, or particularly Daniel's story of his experience in exile... Uh, and the people who went to exile with him, is a story about how you maintain your identity as the people of God, even though they were taken off to exile in Babylon and surrounded by foreign culture. They were surrounded by uh, foreign or different economic and religious pressures. They were forced into an environment that was very different than their own. So how, when you're taken out of your land, how, when you're taken away from your people, how, when you're stripped of your religious identity, do you maintain your identity as the people of God? Because as we've seen through the, throughout the entirety of this story, the question, the thing that God is after is a people that are defined by his name, right? A people that would re represent to God what the world, or people that would represent to the world what God was like. And so... If, you're, if that people, that group of people who are called for that purpose are then stripped of their um, position, right? They're taken out of their land and they're, they're defeated. What does that mean for their identity as God's people? And I think Daniel does a really good job of explaining this for us and will do that today. Now, it helps to take a quick step back and look at some of the background, the history actually of what's going on in this book in order to really understand uh, kind of what we're delving into today. So, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, uh, God, in through Moses' voice, gives Israel, uh, the people of Israel, uh, a warning. He gives them some warnings and some promises. And he says, and he calls them all the way back to Abraham, the very first person, right, who was called by God to be the people of God. And we're called back to those promises. And those promises were... God makes these promises to Israel. I will make your name great. So he says this to Abraham. I'll make your name great. 
your descent, number two, your descendants will be as numerous as the sand on the sea and the, uh, and the stars in the sky. This is, number three, I will give you and your descendants some land, so you'll have some property. You'll have the land of Canaan as your inheritance. And the biggie, the big thing that God tells Abraham is that I will bless the whole world through you and your people, through you and your descendants. These are God's promises to Israel. But Israel also has to keep up its end of the bargain. And in Deuteronomy 29, we read about uh, all that happened, um, about what will happen to Israel if they are unfaithful to their end of the bargain. If they are unfaithful to God's promise, we read a little bit about what will happen there. If they turn their back on God, and uh, basically in Deuteronomy 29, it says that they will live under a type of curse. And this curse includes that Israel will be sent to the ends of the earth, that they'll be scattered to the ends of the earth, that they'll be taken away from their homes, and that they'll be under a kind of judgment. And this is what God says to them, essentially, in Deuteronomy 29. He says, this is going, this is going to happen to you. It's a bit of a prophecy there. And the truth is that Moses says to Israel in the same passage that you are going to struggle you're going to struggle with this covenant-keeping project. He tells them, you're, you don't have the type of heart that it takes to actually follow the law appropriately, and you are going to struggle with this. He also makes a kind of prophetic promise where he says, uh, but God, there is coming a day when God will give you a new heart and you will be able to follow the law well. You, Israel, don't have the type of innate capacity to remain faithful to the law because your hearts are twisted which is, as we looked at earlier, a kind of ramification of the fall that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. And this is essentially what happens in the story of Israel. After King David, we learn that who we learned about last week, we get Solomon, David's son. He comes into power, and things begin to go downhill very, very quickly. Uh, Israel is unable to keep their promises uh, to God, and they forget who they are. They forget their identity to a certain extent. And uh, the kingdom of Israel kind of splits into two kingdoms, a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom. And both, they, they fr the nation itself fractures in a kind of civil war. And then those two kingdoms within, that we would call the nation of Israel uh, each kind of fall into debauchery, right? They, eat, they each kind of devolve in their worship. They begin to incorporate other gods into their own worship. They begin to live very unjust lives and oppress the poor. They begin to do things that are just, uh, uh, frankly, out of step with the covenant that they've made to God. And because of this, God allows them or opens them up to the natural consequences of their actions. And the natural consequences of their actions is that other, more powerful nations will come in and sweep them away. Right? And so what happens uh, is that the nation of Babylon, which that's the name Nebuchadnezzar that Jesse read. And Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. And Babylon comes in uh, after a period of time, and they destroy the temple. They destroy the walls of the city. They take all the good-looking men and women. They take all the powerful and authoritative people, and they take them off to Babylon. They take them away. And this is, in essence, the story of the book of Daniel. The Babylonians come, they destroy everything, and they take everybody away. But notice that they don't just take the, they just, they don't just take the, the everybody away. They take the smart people, right? They take the beautiful people. They take the, they take the leaders away. 
because this is how they maintain their authority. And notice when they get them to Babylon, they don't oppress them. They give them food from the king's table. They give them wine from the king's table. They want to incorporate them into the culture of Babylon because what they want to do is get, have them get rid of their Jewishness, right? They want, them to, they want to strip them of their identity as the people of Israel and put them to work within the context of the Babylonian nation. They want them to forget who they are, right? And kind of ply them with good food and good drink as a me- and money and resource and power as a means of forgetting who they actually are. And by so doing, then, they can keep control over this land. Does this make sense? If, if, they, if the people who have been taken off to exile have it so good that they don't want anything other than what they have in exile, then they're not going to be a problem, right? Then ruling them is not going to be an issue. And this is Babylon's strategy. But things happen Nations fall and they rise, and eventually Babylon is conquered by the, the Assyrians, or what we would call the Persians, and then the Persians are conquered by Alexander the Great and the Greeks, and then the Greeks are essentially eventually overthrown by the Romans, and the Romans are in control when Jesus is born, right? This is the story, this is the very contentious story of nations rising and falling in the Bible that, in, in the, in the Bible that we have, in the stories that we have in the scriptures. And so... Daniel is tossed into this very interesting situation, is he? In a foreign land, forced into the service of a foreign king, asked to worship and live like foreigners. And the question that stands before him is, how do I maintain my identity in this place? How do I not lose my position as an Israelite, as someone that God has called to represent who he is to the world? How do, how do I not lose my identity, right? And Daniel's a kind of cipher. He's kind of an example for the entire nation. How does an entire nation who's been carried off into exile, who's in some sense turned their back on God, how do they then in exile maintain their identity as God's people? How do they not lose that thing, that spark that makes them God's people? This is the question that the exile raises. And this is the question that Daniel struggles with. And this is the example that Daniel gives for us, I think. Even in exile, cut off from his land and his people, Daniel does not want to lose his identity. He does not want to forget who he is. He does not want to forget his story. He does not want to forget the covenant promise that Israel has made with God. And Daniel is a story of what covenant faithfulness, what faithfulness to that promise that was made between Abraham and God actually looks like even when it's cut off from its source, even when it's oppressed, even when it's held down. Daniel maintains a faithful posture, even in exile. And that faithfulness allows him to maintain his identity as one of God's people. And all throughout the exile, whether it be the story of Esther, the story of Esther is the story of a Jewish uh, woman in exile under the Assyrians, under the Persians. So that's in a different regime. And also, uh, the story of Nehemiah is the story of another, of, of another Jewish man under another regime in exile, only he's a high-ranking official, and he's sent back by his king to go rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. All of these stories of exiles uh, have this question about this identity. Who are God's people, and will they maintain their identity as God's people? Will they choose to remain faithful to this promise that God and Abraham made to one another? But not forgetting the story of God's relationship with, with Israel is very, very important. 
and they don't. There are people, there is a remnant of people that in exile that do not forget this special relationship, do, are able to maintain their identity as God's people. And eventually, uh, we read in Nehemiah that they are, they are allowed back, that most of the people who were uh, taken off into exile after a couple generations are allowed back into the land to rebuild the walls and to rebuild the temple. It's not as good as it was. We, in the story of the rebuilding of the temple, actually. So the temple got destroyed. The temple that Solomon built got destroyed. And after uh, the Babylonians destroyed it, and after they were allowed to go back and rebuild it, they rebuilt it, and the temple's there. The second temple is there. And they all sit down on the ground and they weep because it's not as beautiful as the first one. There's this, there's this, sense, of, there's this sense of unfinished, there's this sense of longing that's involved in the exile that... that while we have hope and we've, we've maintained our identity, we've still given something away. And this is how the Old Testament ends. With, with a hope, with a longing, with a desire, with, with a vision for what God might do, that he might send a deliverer that will ultimately lead us out of exile permanently, that he might throw off the restraints of the Romans, that he might deliver his people. There's hope, there's identity, but things are not perfect. And this is why very often we don't talk about the exile, because it, it ends in this kind of cliffhanger. The story of Israel in the Old Testament ends in this cliffhanger, this kind of to be continued. And then between the Testaments, between the last book in the Old Testament and the first book in the New Testament, we have roughly 400 years of silence, where there are no prophets, where there are no miracles, and the people of God are just waiting in anxious anticipation of the one who would deliver them. So this is, where the, this is where the Old Testament ends. It's, it's, it kind of ends with a poof and not a boom, doesn't it? It ends with a little bit of a letdown. And this is why we don't often talk about it. But there's, some, so there, but there's something unique, I think, about the people of Israel in the story of the exile. About the way that they are able to maintain their identity, even in the face of all that they were, they were struck with. They had every opportunity, and most nations did, lose their identity entirely. The way that Babylon, uh, the way that Babylon took, the, took the people of Israel off to Babylon and incorporated them into their culture was the way that they had gotten rid of many ancient cultures. That's how they wiped many ancient cultures off the face of the map. They did this, and this has happened to the, to the people of Israel multiple times in history, and they've somehow been able to maintain their identity, right? They were able to maintain their identity as God's people in some unique sense. And I think there's something there that we can learn from them. How do you maintain your identity? Or how do you, how do you, how do you answer the question, who am I when there are all these forces pulling on us in all these different directions, Right? culture and, and, uh, and family and all of these different things. How do we maintain our identity in the midst of a, of a place that's pulling us in all these different directions? How do we do it? How do we maintain as a Christian, as a person who follows Christ, how do we maintain our identity as a follower of Christ? I think the Exodus is instructive for us this morning. In Colossians uh, chapter 3, verse 3, Paul says this. He says, For you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. 
that in some sense for the Christian person, their identity is to be found in the person of Christ. That that's to shape how they see themselves. And, it's to, and that's the story that we're called to live into. That's the thing that gives us hope, direction, purpose, and life. That's the story we're called to live into. But how do we do it? How do we do it? And I think the story of Daniel in the Exodus gives us a, gives us a glimpse of how best to do this. I think we can glean some clues from the story about how people can actually live into the story of Scripture and gain our identity from it. So, that, uh, so the first thing I would say that we need to understand from this story, the story of the exile, is that, number one, God does not promise Israel a perfect or easy life. I think the best way uh, to live your life is free of struggle, Right? That's how we would like to see our lives, that the best way to live our lives is, is to live our lives free of struggle, to, to live our lives free of difficulty, to live our lives free of, uh, of letdown or disappointment. But actually, the experience of Israel is quite difficult, isn't it? There, there is slaves in Egypt, right? And God rescues them out of that situation. There are all these bumps in the road but those who are faithful to Israel do not allow their circumstances and their, and their difficulty to derail their vision for who they are. They don't allow it to derail their identity as Christ followers. It's interesting because sometimes people think that if you're a follower of Jesus, that your life is just going to be good all the time. Some people preach this. They're a little off. That your life is just going to be great all the time. It happens not to be the case. And if the exile shows us anything, it shows us that uh, occasionally things don't go according to plan, right? And that, and that the, the bumps in the road that occur in our lives are not a proclamation of the fact that we have taken the wrong thing or that our identity is misappropriated. Very often when we run into hard situations in our, world, in our, li- in our own lives, what it causes in us is a, type, is a type of questioning. We question the existence of God. We, que- we question the goodness of God. We question God's faithfulness to us. And those things are natural, right? We should doubt a little bit. That's what it means to be human. We should question a little bit. That's how you grow, right? Those are, those, we shouldn't close ourselves off to those experiences or those emotions in any way. But there is not a correlate, I think. There's not a correlate between our place as God's people and our lives being perfect. There's not a correlate there. And so when, when we run into hard times, we can't then just assume that God has in some sense turned his back on us or that, or that, we are, or that the, the assumptions that we've made about faith are wrong, necess- just out of hand because of this thing that's happened to us. And it's natural to think that way, but it happens not to be accurate. Daniel did not lose his vision for who he was just because he was taken off to exile, right? Just because this bad thing occurred, just because he was removed from his family and his home, just because he, as a young man, was taken in, uh, to a place that he didn't want to go, did not then just simply assume that God was not with him or that he was not still called to be the person that God had called him to be. So that's number one. Number two, uh, your hope comes from living the story of God in your life. Our hope, our vision, our identity comes from living, living into the story of God. 
living into the story of God in your life. Now, this is slightly different than the way we often hear it. Because what we often hear is God has a plan and purpose for your life, right? So he has a plan and purpose that he wants you to walk out. Then notice I, I worded it this way intentionally. Your hope comes from living within God's story. That's where our hope comes from. Our hope does not come from our lives on our, my, my project for my personal life. Now, does God have a plan and a purpose for you? Yes. But it comes from your being wedded into the bigger story that he is telling through, uh, through his people to the world. That's where our hope comes from. It does not come from this, like, project me, all right? That's not where our hope comes from. And, you know, the way you can access this to determine how uh, and if you are doing this appropriately is just to ask some questions. To figure out what story you are living, you can ask questions like, how am I spending my money? What am I hoping for? When I lay my head on the pillow at night, what are my hopes, right? What am I hoping for? You can ask the question, whose kingdom am I building? Because I want to submit to you that if you are building your own kingdom, you are only leveraging your resources and your hope for yourself. In, uh, if the greatest thing you are hoping for is an early retirement and an increased bank account, there will come a day when you look at those things that you have amassed, your own little kingdom, and out of your heart will spring the words, of the writer of Ecclesiastes, vanity and he, this is what he says: vanity and striving after the wind, and there is no profit under the sun. There is this thing that we do, particularly in America, where we attempt to build our own little kingdoms, right? And we put all of our energy and our effort behind these kingdoms, and we construct what we believe to be kind of this safe place for ourselves where we can do what we want to do. And ultimately, I promise, when we look at those things, there will come a time when we will look at the things that we've amassed in our own little kingdom and we will wonder to ourselves, why did I do any of this? Because the only person that it benefits is me. Is me. And it's, we are called to a larger vision a larger purpose than our own lives. Christians are called to something bigger and more significant than my own life. We are called to live into the story that encompasses the entire world and is not just our own little square of real estate, right? And if you sometimes struggle with having a compelling vision for your life, maybe it's because it, your vision is a vision. It's just a little bit too small, and God is calling you to live into the story that he is telling. The vision for, for your life that has to do with building something more significant than a rock-solid 401k, right? We need to read the scriptures and hear the story of God's plans and purposes. His plan of redemption and renewal for the entire world. Because that is the big story that your body and mind were created to live into. And if you live into anything short of that story, it's all going to come up a little hollow. 
It will, because you were created to live into that story, something larger than who you are, something larger than what we're told in culture we're supposed to be striving after. It's true. And this leads to my final observation of the morning. How do we practically live into the story of God? How do, how do we actually do this, right? How do we actually maintain our identity? How do we actually live into the story of God? How do I develop a desire to live into a story that's bigger than just me, right? Because naturally, if you just leave me to my own devices, I'm going to just want to go after the things that make my life better, right? That make me happier, that make uh, everything okay for me and mine, right? This is what This is what we will naturally do. So how do I live into a bigger vision, right? How practically do I do that? And I think Daniel shows us a few things. Daniel shows us that that we must practice. We must practice in the same way that you practice throwing a football. Something the Hawkeyes need to do this week. Um, uh, Sorry, that just comes out of me at random points. Uh, We must practice our identity. We must practice our identity. Israel was given a, a, a set of concrete spiritual practices that they were called to do in order to help them be the people of God. So one thing they were called to do is to pray, and they were given the Shema. Does anybody know what that word is, the Shema? It was, it was, it's the Hebrew name for a prayer, the, the hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And every good Hebrew person was called to pray that prayer three times a day. And we see in the story of Daniel... In Daniel 6, uh, 10, he did this very thing. Now, when Daniel uh, learned the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem because he didn't want to forget God's city, right? Three times a day, he got down his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God, just as he had done before. And you know the prayer that he prayed when he was there? He prayed the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's what he prayed. We need to build consistent patterns or rhythms of devotion and faithfulness into our lives so that when trouble comes, right, when difficulty occurs, we will have built up deep wells in our heart which we can draw from. Prayer is not just about you taking your needs to God. Prayer is about being formed as a person. Prayer is about developing an identity I love that Daniel prayed three times a day, no matter what, that he had a, that that there was this kind of rote nature to his life because he knew that in the midst of exile, he had to determine who he actually was. And the best way to determine who, to remind himself of who he was, was to pray the Shema, to be reminded of who he was and who God was and who God had called him to be. This is how he did this. There's an author, his name's Mike uh, Cosper, and he says this about prayer. He says, we pray because we've chosen to orient our lives around prayer, and we submit ourselves willingly to that life. Rather than our spiritual life be reactive, constantly responding to life's circumstances, this way of life is a steady rhythm and an anchor. Rather than trying to find words to express whatever we might be experiencing, uh, we, pray that this, we pray the scriptures and try to find our lives in those words. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be formed in our identity as a Christian by the scriptures. This is how we do it. 
you cannot develop your identity and you will be co-opted into the identity of some other identity, some other competing identity, unless you are a person, right, who engages in routine and regular spiritual practices. This is just the, this is just the reality of our lives. We've very often heard this put in our church, in this church's tradition, that you need to have a quiet time, a devotional life. And that's essentially what we're talking about here. But I, I want to go deeper than that. I want to go deeper than just like quiet time. Because we, we need more practices that, in, that envelop us in the identity of what it means to be a Christ follower. The truth is, is that just because you believe in Jesus does not mean you know how to be a Christian. Just, I'm just going to say it again because it's true. Just because you believe in Jesus does not mean you know how to be a Christian. We need to learn how to do that. We really do. Being a Christian is something that we learn through intention and repetition and relationship. This is how we learn how to follow Jesus. And the primary practices that develop our identity as Christians, as followers of Jesus, are as follows. Scripture, prayer, community or church attendance. This is how we learn how to be a Christian. Communion, baptism, confession, the bearing of burdens, the giving of our resources to, to our brothers and sisters. This is how we learn how to be a Christian. And as we, uh, as we involve those uh, disciplines and those rhythms in the daily um, kind of action of our lives, what happens is that we gain an identity that doesn't look like a different identity, but rather looks like the identity of a people called for the purposes of God. This is what it means to be a Christian, and this is why we do these things. This is one of the main reasons, and I've said this a few times, this is one of the main reasons we come to church. We don't just come to church because if you don't come to church, God's going to be mad at you. That's not true. We come to church because we all, because, because we need to be reminded of who God is and who we are. And that it's this rhythm, it's this natural rhythmic practice that actually forms something in us over time. This is why, this, and it's funny when we say things like this and people say it's kind of unspiritual to say you need, to, you need, a, you need a practice, you need a rhythm in life that forms you, that forms your identity. Because we believe this in every other facet of our lives, right? Nobody believes that like you could just put 33-year-old me out on a football field today having not practiced in... I think like 20 years <laughs> of football and think that that will, that I will be successful on the football field, right? We, we don't think that we just, uh, some of you might have very unhealthy uh, views of my physical prowess, which is fine. You can keep those. But, uh, but I'm just telling you that it will not be good, right? It will not be good. And the same is true of our identity, that we need these rote or routine practices that make us who we are who we are, that remind us of our identity, that, that help us live into the story of God. And this is, what it, this is what it means to be a Christian, to remind ourselves, to form our identity so that we can live into the story that God is telling all around us, so that we can be agents of renewal and reconciliation everywhere we go, that we can communicate the goodness and the grace of God to a world that desperately needs it. This is what it means to be a Christian. And this is why we need to maintain an identity that says our identity, right, as Christ followers is different, is slightly different than what we're hearing 
all the time out in culture. And the reason, and another reason you need these routines, right? You need these rhythms of grace, you could call them, these practices, is because uh, we are all in Babylon. We are all in Babylon, right? We are, we are all, in a sense, in exile, right? We, 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 we belong to a people, but that people has no nation, right? Uh, Peter tells the church, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you are to declare the praises of him who calls you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. This is what the church is, but the church is not, does not have a nation. We are in Babylon, we are in exile, and we await a coming king. But while we are here, right, while the church is where the church is, the church is called to maintain its identity. The church is called to, main, to, to continue to be the people of God, even in Babylon. It's a powerful image. It's a powerful analogy of what it means to be the church, isn't it? And what I want to say, really, to all of us today because I feel this in my own heart very often. I feel the ways in which I'm being pulled in directions that aren't towards, the ki aren't kingdom directions. I feel the ways in which my heart is pulled and it wants things that aren't uh, in line with the kingdom of God. And I have to ask myself, why is that? And the, and the answer to that question is, well, I'm being discipled in a culture that isn't my own, right? Because I'm living in a world that isn't, uh, the world that I was called to live into, that, I, that I'm living with a vision for uh, a type of future that isn't the vision for the type of future that I was called to have, right? And so, and I'm, I have a vision of what is good that might be skewed or off or wrong, and that, and that vision is leading my heart in directions that it shouldn't go. And the only way to combat that kind of drift in our identity, the only way to combat that kind of pull towards things that aren't good, Right? The only, way to, the only way to combat the sin that we feel residing in our hearts so often is to live into this other identity, is to live into our our the identity that is available to us in Jesus, and to take up these historic church practices like confession, right? Confessing to one another that there's these areas in my life where I'm be my heart is being pulled in directions that I don't think it's supposed to be pulled, right? This is normal. This is good. These the historic church practices of just church attendance where I can be reminded, reminded again of the faithfulness and goodness of God. These practices like prayer. These practices like the receiving of communion. Right? These, these are practices that if we do them over time, we will be formed in the image of God and we'll realize, I want different things than I thought I wanted. You know the worst way to get you to want something different? is to just tell yourself to want something different. You have to act your way into a different life. We have to live our way into a different way of living. And if, and if we are going to be a community of faith, we're going to be a people called for the purposes of God, we have to take up these practices, these identity markers, these habits even, that, that it, over time form us into our identity as, as Christ followers. Thank you. That's a good place to stop since I got Carol to amen. I, I preach until Carol says amen, and then I'm done. Let's pray. Father, uh, we, uh, we love you, 
Jesus. And we ask that here today uh, we would be a Um, Father, I pray, I'm going to change that. Father, I pray uh, for those of us in this room, and it's probably all of us, those of us in this room who we feel the ways in which our heart is being pulled in directions that it shouldn't be pulled. We feel the ways in which um, we want things that we know are not good for us. I pray for those of us whose hearts have been discipled by a culture that says, the thing I need to build is my own kingdom, and I need to protect myself against other people, and I need to not give myself away. I pray for all of us in this room, Father God, who are, in some real and true sense, residing in a world that does not want our hearts to go in the direction that you want them to go in. And so this morning, God, I pray for us. I pray for... I pray for those people who feel that in in themselves in the same way that I feel that in myself. Would you help us to be a people who are discipled in the way of Jesus? That where there is is self-seeking in our hearts, we would learn to disciple ourselves in the way of giving. Where there is animus or anger in our hearts, God, I pray that we would disciple ourselves in the way of love where there is a desire to protect myself, God, I pray that we would disciple ourselves in the way of Jesus that gives ourselves away to the world. Father, where there is a kind of of, uh, desire for the things in life that lead to to brokenness, where there's uh, lust or pain or hurt, God, I pray that we would disciple ourselves in the way of Jesus that leads us to life and life to the full. Jesus, would you be that discipler for us this morning? Would you be the one that leads us into our identity as your followers? Would you lead us into a vision for life that is so big and so beautiful and so all-encompassing that we simply can't deny it? Would you be that God for us this morning? And would you help us to be your people? We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. So if you're joining us for our membership meeting, you can uh, slide on up to the fellowship hall now, Uh, and if not, you can go in the grace and in the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.